It's like the first time in the history of humanity that we have to rethink what it means to be human. It's no longer, I think, therefore I am. Most of our thinking can be outsourced to machines. Welcome to Radio Davos, the podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at the biggest challenges and how we might solve them. This week, if all the thinking is being done by artificial intelligence, what's left for us? The IQ battle is probably lost against machines, but the EQ battle is where we have a unique opportunity to differentiate. Thomas Chamaro Premozik is Chief Innovation Officer at Manpower Group and author of a new book called I Human: AI, Automation and the Quest to Reclaim What Makes Us Unique. He says, you don't have to love the AI revolution, but you'd be a fool to ignore it. If you're dismissing it and you're not interested, or you're just assuming in a utopian way that it will make people happier, healthier, more productive, but you don't understand the pros and cons, you're missing out on something that will definitely play a big role in the interactions and experiences people have with work. And Manpower's chief innovation officer has advice for how human resources managers should approach AI. You should minimize feedback that seems creepy, Orwellian, or Big Brother-esque. AI is difficult sometimes because it's either crappy or creepy, right? Subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts or visit weft.ch slash podcasts where you'll find all our back catalogue and other shows. I'm Robin Pomeroy at the World Economic Forum and with this look at what it is to be human in a world of AI. I do feel somewhat optimistic that it will create that appetite for the analog world. This is Radio Davos. And Radio Davos once again is looking at artificial intelligence. It continues to hit the headlines. Last week, as I record this, a study predicted 300 million full-time jobs could disappear thanks to AI. Days later, 1,400 AI leaders, including Elon Musk and Steve Wozniak, call for a six-month pause in AI development. They say governments and policymakers need to create proper governance before AI affects what they call a profound change in the history of life on Earth. In this episode, we speak to the author of a book called I, Human, AI, Automation and the Quest to Reclaim What Makes Us Unique. He's called Thomas Chamaro Premusic. He's a psychologist and he's the chief innovations officer at Manpower. My colleague Gail Markovitz started by asking him, in a world of work transformed by COVID and now set to be even more revolutionised by artificial intelligence, what does the ideal employee look like today? The ideal employee looks a lot more like, you know, the, the freelancers of pre-2019 or people who are self-employed or work for themselves who have been working at home for a while, who have no interest in going to an office, who see, you know, interacting with others in an office as a distraction and as a reduction in their productivity, efficiency. So I think, you know, potentially you're better off now if you're introverted, if you can manage yourself, if you're self-disciplined, and if you don't need to have somebody who walks behind your back or behind your screen telling you, oh, come on, come on, what are you doing now? And micromanaging you, which has never been really an ideal boss. But I think now there's definitely... Um, a need to be more independent and you're more adaptable if you can basically manage yourself. You speak about managers. How do you manage effectively in that context? Yeah, it's a lot harder than before. You know, let's start with people who really were strong on the people skill side of things and who maybe, you know, were emotionally intelligent, had a natural ability to understand people, connect with them, see them, interpret how they're feeling, etc. And now, you know, you're suddenly shut off or I mean, that's cut off from you, right? So you, you basically have to 
think of how people are doing. You can see them. You have to revert to, you know, digital means of communication. You have to meet people where they are. Some people might like Slack, others WhatsApp, others email, others Teams. Some people on virtual meetings might not want to put a camera on and you have to respect them. So, you know, suddenly it's a lot more complicated. The intuitive aspects of seeing people goes away. The one size fits all part, which always makes things easier, goes away. You have a team of five people and everybody has different, you know, needs and everybody sees freedom and flexibility in a different way. Some people want to be in, maybe you as a boss don't want to be in, but people are, hey, where are you? You know, I'm at the office. So you have to customize and personalize, which makes your work much harder. And then fundamentally, I think the hardest thing for managers to do is to basically get their act together to evaluate what people produce and not, you know, the levels of activity. So I think, you know, I always recall one of the early anecdotes from the beginning of the pandemic when people were sent home and a colleague of mine said, you know, after her office shut, she said, but without the office, how will I pretend to work? Which is a very cynical, but a wonderful, you know, line because a lot of people go to the office to perform the performative act of working. And managers like that, if you're a boss and you walk around and you see your people seemingly busy, even if they're watching Netflix or YouTube, you're like, oh, I must be a good boss because they all seem so focused. Now that's gone, of course, pre-2020 or 2019, there were already reasons to actually evaluate what people produce and the value they contribute to a team or organization. But now you have no alternative because that's the only way in which you can treat people like adults and give them freedom and flexibility. You know, you have to be more rigorous and try to be as objective as possible, evaluating things like their KPIs, what they deliver, and, you know, giving them feedback on that. And that's hard work, especially when you have very skilled people. And in, in simple kind of blue collar or predictable jobs, etc., like an Uber driver, it's very easy to know whether somebody is performing or not. But if you're a management, management consultant or a CEO, you know, it's not so easy. So there's this paradox in management that the more you get paid for doing your job and the more skilled you are, the harder it is to know whether you're actually doing a good job or not. You alluded also to, to digital distractions and, you know, workers might be watching Netflix. Um and I know in your book, you said knowledge workers account for 60% of GDP, and that costs as much as $650 billion every year of lost time to digital distraction. Do you think that's worse when people are at home or, or no difference? Ah, great question. Yeah, I mean, we don't have data on that, right? But I mean, those $650 billion a year is staggering. And I think I note in the book is like 15 times more than performance detriments or deficits due to sickness, leave and health related issues, you know, which are obviously on the rise as well, which I think explains why productivity went up in the first phase of the digital revolution, like from 2000 to 2008 or 10, and then it started going down. If, you know, 50% of the time you're at work, you are, or you're supposed to be working, you're wasting time on your phone or computer, you know, that's not making you very productive. But I think you're making a really interesting point because possibly now going to the office is less distracting because if somebody stops you in the corridor and you connect with them and you do small talk and you find out, you know, how it's going, etc., that lubricates the social ties that actually enhance collaboration. And actually, you're at least not looking at your screen, you know, whereas at home, the temptation of all these algorithmic uh, nudges and AI infused platforms to just refresh and check again and get distracted under the illusion that you're multitasking, the temptation is huge. 
And, you know, nobody's stopping you from doing that. That's why I go back to you need to have a lot of self-control and self-discipline um, to be productive working from home. Even after the time you save commuting or the time you save, you know, um, getting ready for work and the time that your colleagues spend distracting you at work. You mentioned multitasking, and I know that you've said it's a nice idea, but also a great myth. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you talk a bit more yeah. about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's research on this going back to the 60s or 70s. You know, basically, we never multitask. We just task, we just switch tasks. And, you know, every time you switch, there is a cost and a deficit in attention, in concentration, in reconfiguring it. And, you know, there's recent studies that have looked at that specifically in the context of digital distractions. And I think it's something like, you know, if you're doing, let's say you're about to write an article or you're preparing a client proposal or a presentation, right? And you're thinking, you're doing that after five, 10 minutes, you know, an email comes in or a message comes in and you go to WhatsApp, you respond, you're having fun, etc. When you go back, there's like there's something like 15 to 25 minute reset to actually achieve the same level of focus and be where you left that task. So imagine, you know, every time you switch, it's very quick to switch, but actually there's a reset that brings you back 20 or 25 minutes. And, you know, that's why I think in the early age of uh, social media, we had all these blockers, etc. And, you know, I find it myself, you know, I, I tend to read a lot of books at the same time. So typically when I travel, I have everything on my iPad, but I never go online on my iPad because if you're reading or you're trying to read when you're having some downtime and then you allow for all these messages or refers to come in, you're not going to do more than two pages in a row. You know, so you have to control yourself and you have to treat it as a real distraction. Um, we don't know, by the way, what this is doing to our brain, but, you know, it's not unfeasible to think that in 20 years time, we will have brain scanning studies that actually show what spending 21 years of an average lifetime on your screen does to the brain. And it's interesting that now people are attacking TikTok and there's a lot of attention on TikTok as like digital um, you know, crack cocaine or whatever, because the algorithms are so ruthless and it's so addictive. But actually, any of these platforms relies on AI to hijack attention, to compete for attention, and to make people come back. And, you know, they are very, very good at doing this because they can optimize for what we want to see and what's distracting in the first place. One last thing on, on workplace before we talk about AI in full. Tracking software, workplace tracking software, you said that it's expected to be adopted by 70% of large firms in the next three years. What is tracking software and what are they? What are companies trying to find out about their workers? You know, most companies already, large companies have something in place under their cybersec or cybersecurity kind of, um, you know, governance, right? I mean, you want to monitor phishing emails, spam, dangerous hacking, threatening activity, etc. With that, basically comes the ability to see, at least at the aggregate level, whether people have good digital hygiene or not, or whether it was. With that, you know, comes a lot of information as like in the pandemic, you know, lots of companies started saying, are people actually logging in and or out when they say, because if we can't see them, you know, how much hours are they spending and what will that do to productivity? And then you can actually get more granular. Of course, you can do this at the individual level, even though mostly this information is anonymized and preserved. 
But I think the opportunity is to sort of transition from a place where you're just monitoring hacking and dangerous activities to actually get aggregate insights that predict things like employee engagement, well-being, productivity. And I think the opportunity with AI is to actually give individuals some feedback on what their daily patterns of activity say about them. So imagine that you know, we scrape your email metadata or your Slack metadata or whatever, and we tell you, hey, you know, today you connected with people outside of your main central network. That's great because you're collaborating with people who have a different function, who are in different places, and that can give you ideas. Or even scrape the type of language that you use because natural language processing can be used to translate, you know, your um, patterns of communication into uh, morale, motivation, it can tell you, you know, congratulations, today you've emailed like a high potential employee, you use words that are very enthusing or motivating. And, you know, so I think any feedback that can help people understand how they're doing and how they can do better, sort of like an automated or virtual coach, not different, by the way, from the wearables and the quantified self tools that we already use in our phones or smart watches, etc. that can really help. And I think, you know, the way to do it is in an ethical way, you should allow people, you, sh you should definitely make sure that people understand what's being done with what data and for what purpose. You should allow them to opt in if they find it useful or not. Uh, you should minimize feedback that seems creepy or, you know, Orwellian or Big Brother-esque. And I think, you know, AI... It's difficult sometimes because it's either crappy or creepy, right? It either doesn't work and you're like, oh my God, you know, these updates are telling me nothing. But then sometimes it's like, oh my God, how does it know this about me? And then, of course, there should be a benefit to the employee or to the user, whether it's, you know, getting to understand themselves better, improvements in morale, productivity, etc. And I think if you do that, it can be not so much a surveillance tool, but a productivity or even a tool for understanding people, which is the main problem that organizations need to solve, right? Helping employees understand themselves and helping managers or leaders understand their talent. I'm surprised, actually, that, that uh, you've painted such a, posit a potentially positive picture. I and such an I am a little bit naive. <laughs> and such an opportunity. <laughs> I'm a bit naive and optimistic. Um, but... Uh, I mean, I'm I'm more I'm not surprised because it is surprising. I'm just surprised because your book is quite uh, it's quite negative, negative yeah, um, or perhaps just realistic. But I mean, you know, it's there's a lot of hype around AI, and we just yesterday there was that report that said that you know 300 million full-time jobs will be impacted. Um, but I know that your angle is much more about how it affects relationships and and well-being mm -hmm. and social behaviour. Um, so I mean, how what what are the behavioral tendencies that you think AI has unleashed? Yeah, so here we go on to the dark side, right? And that's probably the bleakest part of the book. And again, you know, I'm not trying to make predictions about the future. I'm talking about what we have seen so far, because no one has data on the future. And we've seen many times predict on predictions like the one you mentioned, right? 300 million jobs will disappear or whatever. Yeah, well, let's see. Usually these predictions are sensationalist and off. What we have seen, however, is that in the last 10 years, the majority of people have interacted with AI through the platforms that AI inhabits, where it fuels, you know, via very, very um, impressive and quite predictive algorithms. It fuels um, traffic visits, uh, revisits to those platforms, and hijacks our attention. And you know, these are basically 
tools that minimize the effort required to make decisions. It's like we have this digital concierge called AI and we outsource a lot of our decision-making to that. What movies we watch, what music we listen to, whom we date, where we dine, where we go on vacation, what we buy, etc. And I'm very interested in the behavioral impact that this is having, spending so much time on these platforms and under the influence of AI. And there's evidence to me that it has made us more unfocused or distracted, more impulsive, more biased, more narcissistic. I mean, these platforms have basically normalized or democratized narcissism very, very clearly. It's not that they have made us narcissistic. We were already quite narcissistic and it's gasoline to the fire. And also more boring and predictable because when you optimize all of your days and life to not think, you know, um, it's like the first time in the history of humanity that we have to rethink what it means to be human. It's no longer, I think, therefore I am. We're now asking ourselves what it means to be human in nature where most of our thinking can be outsourced to machines. And when that happens, the AI or the machines, in order to sell more accurate predictions to investors and marketeers and others, have an incentive to actually constrain the range of behaviors in which we unveil. If you're like, it's just like with your friends, you know, if you have a friend who is really unpredictable and you don't know what to buy them for birthday, Christmas, uh, where to go on vacation, what they would like, whatever, it's a pain. You have to think a lot and every time it's like a trial and error situation. But if you have a friend who is a bit OCD and predictable, you know, like uh, Jack Nicholson in As Soon As It Gets, it's very easy to relate to them. And you know where they're going to sit, what they're going to order. It's, you know, so AI is pushing us into that direction, the very monotonous, predictable, boring, repetitive direction. We're quite happy to spend most of our day training AI to understand us better and just scrolling up and down, liking this, sharing this resharing articles without even reading it, having AI autocomplete our messages and now having a co-pilot at work that does all the thinking for us. And what, what do we do with the time we save? How do we ensure that we upskill and reskill? And are we actually becoming smarter and more creative? Or is our intelligence becoming some kind of a latent, dormant, passive muscle that we don't need to use anymore? Those are the questions, I think. Do you think there's a role for employers to, to strategize about this? Definitely. Well, let's start with HR, right? To our, I mean, the people we mostly deal with commercially and professionally, they are HR directors or people who are in the business of helping organizations understand people issues, which are the main problems that organizations have. Today, if you're an HR professional, you need to have a minimum level of curiosity to understand AI. I mean, now just chat GPT, which is just one tool. If you're dismissing it and you're not interested or you're just you know, assuming in a utopian way that it will make people happier, healthier, more productive, but you don't understand the pros and cons, you're missing out on something that will definitely play a big role in the interactions and experiences people have with work, right? And the same goes for AI. I think just like, 20 years ago, if you were in HR and you only did payroll or admin and you didn't understand the philosophical aspects of what's talent, what's potential, what's leadership, you know, what's reskilling, upskilling, you were at a loss. Today, you need to understand how people interact with technology. With that comes what I think is, well, I think the two biggest imperatives for organizations today are how to ensure that we reskill and upskill people so that the new jobs that are created when all jobs go and more jobs are created usually 
people who lose the previous jobs have access to the new jobs. It's not automatic, right? If you're a store manager, a brick and mortar store manager, and people start shopping online, you can become a cybersecurity analyst or an AI ethicist to talk about, you know, the impact of AI on behavior. So reskilling and upskilling is really important. And Europe, you know, it's addressed more by governments and the US is addressed more by companies. Uh, and then the second one is, I think, to rehumanize work, to ensure that people actually have some fun, some joy, and that, you know, work can come close to doing these things that we actually claim it should, like, you know, people finding a sense of purpose, identifying with the work persona, uh, feeling proud of what they do, thriving. That's not going to happen if you just basically focus on productivity and optimize work for machines and not for humans. And, you know, and that's a big, big imperative. The opportunity, of course, is to use data to be more meritocratic and to, you know, sanitize some of the politics and nepotism that exists in organizations. But even if you do that, you have to do it with a human and humane touch. And that's very, very difficult because we can't expect HR leaders or executives to be moral philosophers or to be, you know, psychologists. But actually, an understanding of these issues is, I think, very critical today. And for individuals, how do you think they can navigate it? What's how do, how do I how do I keep hold of my humanity? I have to admit, I um, I asked ChatGPT what I should ask you today. <laughs> Yep, and yep. It, it wasn't a bad list of questions and not that different to what I came up with myself. Yeah. But yeah, so like, what would I, what should I do? I'm, I mean, especially me in an industry that's definitely something under, you know, it's, it's threatened. Yeah, I think like journalism, media is a really good one to pick. What should you do? And let's take you and like what you do as an example of a job. I think definitely don't dismiss this, number one, you know. Um, don't engage in self-enhancing reality distortion saying, oh my God, I tried it and these are the mistakes. I'm so much better because then you really are at risk, right? Um, relatedly, don't see this tool as a competitive threat, but see it as an instrument that you can use to become more creative, right? Third, find ways in which you reinvent what you do and how you work that provide the human touch and the human value, right? To me, basically, ChatGPT is the intellectual equivalent of fast food. And, you know, the fast food industry rose. It's very successful now, still. It has made it very easy for people to stay on the chairs and order in and eat vast amount of highly caloric, not very nutritious or healthy food for a low amount of money. And, you know, at the same time, it has given us the farm to table movement. It has not killed but enhanced demand for Michelin star chefs. And it has basically uh, highlighted the importance of eating healthy and understanding, you know, what to the point that even McDonald's would put the calories up and have salads, right? So I think we have the ability to self-regulate on an individual level and a collective level. And fundamentally, what this means for most people if to, is to really focus on developing or harnessing the qualities that AI won't emulate or won't replicate. Empathy, general curiosity, you know, a deep desire to understand things and learn things. I'm always sad when the term deep learning is associated with machines and not with humans because it should be a human quality. And also, you know, kindness, respect, caring for others, 
self-awareness. You know, if you ask ChatGPT whether it has self-awareness, it will say no. I'm just a la large language model, which paradoxically makes it very self-aware. It's aware of its not not lack of self-awareness. I worry about humans for their self-defensiveness, and when I hear that people are just reporting the inaccuracies. Let's remember, this is version 4. What about version 40 or 15, if this keeps improving? And people say, oh, yeah, but it's not creative, it's not funny, it's not self-aware, it's not empathetic. My answer is always, neither are most humans by the looks of it, right? So maybe this is a bit of a wake-up call for us to harness these qualities and understand that the IQ battle is probably lost against machines. Uh, but the EQ battle is where we have a unique opportunity to differentiate. And of course, you know, we need to find ways to benefit from this technology and leverage it to create something different. It's no longer, again, like, you know, when photography is invented, it doesn't kill visual artists. Visual artists start to use photography and you get pop art and Andy Warhol. When synthesizers are invented, it doesn't kill orchestra conductors and so on and so on and so on. I have seen a lot of positive activity with this tool whereby people share, you know, funny things they make it do. Obviously, to write the right prompts re requires an understanding of how it works, creativity, ingenuity, etc. So, you know, I think that's the glass half full and then there is the glass half empty, which we covered as well. I'm always fascinated by how things don't always play out to the, to the logical conclusion. And I just wondered if you foresee, I know you don't like predicting the future, but if you do foresee any curveballs, and I, there's, a, there's a lot of hype with uh, generative AI now, do you think some of these sort of language models are going to be just a little blip in the history of AI, or do you think it's really going to fundamentally change things? This is a really, really smart question. And I think, again, even though I'm uncomfortable predicting things, especially if they're less than, you know, 50 years, because 50 years, everybody will be dead and nobody will check. So it's fine. But, you know, if it's in my lifetime, I don't want to do it. But look, it's a really, really smart question. And just out of intuition, I would say it is overhype, I think mostly because the data science that underpins it is not groundbreaking, is not a tipping point, right? It's a combination of different things that were there. And what it has done really well is the user interface and the user experience. It's very her-like, like the movie, right? Minus Scarlett Johansson, of course, which you know is disappointing for a lot of people. But I think that uh, probably in terms of accuracy rather than speed, it has a ceiling. We may not have reached it, but it's not going to be, oh my God, um, you know, artificial general intelligence or singularity. I don't think so. But I do think that, and you know, we're not going to become Luddites either or technophobes. This is going to be there. And of course, there is a business interest in pushing it. And Microsoft is already there. And, you know, it's a brilliant move from a commercial perspective. I do feel somewhat optimistic that it will create that appetite for the analog world. You know, because we will value the things that we cannot do on this platform and with these tools. So maybe, you know, I, maybe it's a utopian vision of the future where there is a little space in the universe made of 3D objects and physical kind of things far away from the metaverse where nuanced analog people meet and have deep discussions about what it is to be human and enjoy their company without checking their phones or multitasking or having Neuralink in their brains. I mean, that's what I'm hopeful for, but I'm, you know, maybe I'm of a certain age that I'm showing that, you know, I've kind of already in my midlife crisis and nostalgic of the analog world that I grew up with. And, you know, when I tell this to my students, they're like, what is this guy going on about? <laughs>
Thomas Chamorro, Premusic, Chief Innovation Officer at Manpower. His book is called I, Human, AI, Automation and the Quest to Reclaim What Makes Us Unique. He was speaking to Gail Markovitz. We'll have lots more on the two big topics raised in this episode, artificial intelligence and the world of work, in forthcoming episodes of Radio Davos, including coverage of the World Economic Forum's Future of Jobs report. That's out in a few weeks. Ensure you don't miss any of that by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, we would really appreciate it if you could click to give us a rating and maybe even write us a small review. And to discuss anything you heard here or to discuss any of your favourite podcasts, please join us on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club. That's on Facebook. This episode of Radio Davos was written and presented by me, Robin Pomeroy. Studio production was by Gareth Nolan. We'll be back next week, but for now, thanks to you for listening and goodbye.